Okay, if you can turn to Psalm 73. I feel like I'm sort of at a disadvantage in a sense because I've been thinking about this text for over a month. And I usually like to, to kind of compare this to, uh, you know, I stew on it, a text for a while. And uh, I hope this one's not overdone. Okay? But uh, actually, it's like a, some good pork that is just right, some good smoked pork and not a burnt pancake. So, all right, Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that in Christ uh, there is the fullness of grace and truth. And we need grace and truth this morning. And so we ask that you give us Christ, whom you sent that we might have this grace and truth from the Scriptures. Do this so that we can see your glory, that we might love and delight in you all the more. Help us to discover how indeed you are good to all those who are pure in heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. While I was in seminary, I went faithfully to chapel twice a week. And I don't know exactly how many sermons I heard over the course of those three years, but I heard a lot. And not many of them stood out to me, but there was one that stood out to me. One of my Old Testament professors, Mike Lodo, preached on this text. And part of what stood out to me was the opening illustration he used, in which I am now about to steal. He mentioned a research project, a scientific study that took place, and this study involved rats. And the theory that they were going to test, the thesis they were going to test, was that a good diet leads to a longer life based on these rats. And so they were going to give one rat healthy food and another rat Junk food. Unfortunately for them, the wrong rat died. (laughs) Apparently, some granola got stuck in his throat and he choked to death. (laughs) Life does not work out the way we expect it to work out. Whether it's an experiment or real life real consequences. Tim Keller, I just saw this quote last night, says that deep down we cling to the simplistic idea that if we are good, life will go well. This is simply untrue. There are many times when the wrong rat dies. And that's really what is going on in Psalm 73. The wrong rat has died and Asaph is struggling with it. Just as we struggle with it. And so let's listen to what Jesus says to the envious heart as we go through this psalm. The big idea this morning is that God is ultimately good to us in Christ. Right? That's what we're going to work with today. Let's start with the unfortunate news that earthly realities don't necessarily reflect eternal realities. Let's start a little bit with who wrote this. And Asaph, is. there's not a whole lot that's known about him, but we do know that Asaph was a religious professional. He was a Levite. And as a Levite, he was among those who led the people of Israel in worship in the temple. 
And so Asaph was an important man. He was a godly man. He was a religious professional, as I said, because he took his living from doing this. Asaph begins with his thesis, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he qualifies who Israel is. In a sense, I almost hear Paul in the background going, not all Israel is Israel. But we see that when he's talking about Israel, he's talking about faithful Israel to those who are pure in heart, who the antithesis of this word pure is the idea of defiled. And so the, the concept that he's trying to communicate to us is the people who are fully allied with God. In other words, they don't have another God on the side. But they're faithful in their, wor- their worship of Him. They're devoted to Him and not devoted to many gods. But you see, Asaph learned this the hard way. And he's about to tell us how he learned it. This is not just his thesis, it is also his conclusion, but first the wrong rat had to die. He had to learn this, as I said, the hard way. And I'm reminded of Paul writing to the Philippians, where in chapter 4 he says, Not that I am speaking of need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And so just as Paul had to learn contentment through often the absence of provision, so Asaph had to learn the goodness of God to his people when things didn't seem so good. So, he starts off by by mentioning that, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He's on slippery territory. Here in Arizona, you have to work hard to find ice, like, you know, on, on the ground. You know, but where I grew up, there was lots of ice on the ground. And when you're a boy, it's a whole lot of fun. In fact, I would get in trouble because during recess, I would find the ice and slide on the ice. But when you're older... Walking on the ice is not so much fun. This is the not so much fun kind of ice because it almost cost him everything. Okay? He had slipped. He had stumbled. And he's going to tell us how it is that he he stumbled. What happens is, is that he sees that the wicked had it pretty good. (laughs) That they inexplicably experienced Shalom. That's the word that's translated prosperity here. Let that sink in for a moment. The wicked had wholeness, had peace. They seemed to be experiencing God's peace, shalom. They're the last people who are supposed to be experiencing shalom. And yet, they were. 
Asaph was not the only person who had this experience. We heard about it a little bit from Ecclesiastes. Earlier in chapter 7, he said, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. It's not just the teacher. It's not just Asaph. But we experience the same things. We see the same things. Now, I can't go into every nook and cranny of this psalm, but I'll say that I want you to note that in verses 4 through 12, it's all about the wicked, and he continually uses they, 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 there, there, there. For those of you who are the grammar people, it's the I-E, right? Okay, possessive. It's all about them. He's talking about their heart attitude. He's talking about their actions. He's talking about the pride that fills them up, the pride that drives them, the violence that they commit, the wickedness that they do. And yet, again, shalom, they had, from all appearances, health. They had wealth. They seemed, from his perspective, to be free of troubles, even though they were a source of troubles to other people. He mentions they had no pangs until death. He admits they die. But before that point in time, everything seems to roll pretty nicely for them. They're fat and sleek. They're not stricken. But they're oozing with pride and folly and violence. Let's think about his context for just a moment. His context is most likely fellow Israelites. Unless he leaves Jerusalem, he's not rubbing shoulders with a whole lot of people from Sidon or Tyre or any of the other nations surrounding them. So I think he's really focused upon unfaithful Israelites. Perhaps even other Levites. Who are pursuing a course of sin and yet still seem to be prospering. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. In our context, we can see this both in the church as well as outside of the church. We see people who seem to be living for the wrong things, prospering. For instance, I had a conversation with someone recently about the glass ceiling that they believe exists at work, and I'm pretty sure they're right about the glass ceiling. They realize that a Christian can probably only go so far where they work because all of the VPs are very public in their support of very progressive ideas. And if you're not also supportive of those progressive ideas, you're going to be capped. And so we see the, the wicked often prospering around us, but we can also see it in the church. 
How many times have we seen a church that is led by a man that is big? The celebrity pastor with all the books and the thousands of people in attendance, and then we discover after the fact that he spiritually abuses people or that he's been unfaithful to his wife for years. Sometimes it seems like faithful pastors don't prosper and unfaithful ones seem to. So we see this injustice around us. And so we see from this psalm that it's not new. What we're experiencing is not a new thing. It's just we're more aware of it because we see far much more of it due to the media as well as social media. We see everything now, so it seems. And one of the things that uh, keeps coming up in Scripture in places like Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What we just read from First Peter, where God is a faithful judge, a just judge, sometimes what we see and experience makes us question that. For instance... Right now, we have two professing Christians who are running for president who both have more baggage than Imelda Marcos had shoes. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I don't want to vote come this fall. That's the world we live in. Where sometimes uh, people who don't look repentant and couldn't qualify for church membership are on the verge of leading a whole country. Scary stuff, isn't it? It often looks like God is good to the impure of heart who are seen to prosper before us. That's sort of the earthly reality. But is it the eternal reality? Let's see his response to this. So the second part of what I want us to consider is that envy strips us of spiritual vitality. Sorry, more bad news. Okay. We notice that he almost stumbled, that he nearly slipped. And he says, precisely because I was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. Years ago, I had gone to a place called the Flume. Actually, Jessica, you probably just went, I've been there, didn't you? Yes. For those of you who don't know, it's on the Kangamangas Highway up in uh, the middle of New Hampshire, up through the mountains, and it's a series of waterfalls. And so I was a brand new Christian in the mid-80s, and a bunch of us, my new friends from church, had decided to go up there after church one Sunday, and we're enjoying the flume. And I thought to myself as I'm looking at the, the top of this waterfall, wouldn't that be a great place for me to have a picture taken? I don't know why this fence is in the way. <laughs> so I climbed over the fence. And I gave, I gave my uh, go- girlfriend number three, if my wife was here, she'd, she'd know who that was. So, Stephanie, you can ask her when you see her, okay? 
who's, wife, who's girlfriend three, I climb over the fence and I stand on this rock in the middle of the waterfall and what, what happens? I slipped. And I didn't even think about it at the moment, but I was two feet away from slipping over the waterfall as opposed to just slipping and getting my feet wet. Okay. I think the idea that he has here is that he really slipped like I slipped, but he could have slipped worse. Okay? He fell, but he did not fall finally. He's in danger, nonetheless. He's in a dangerous place, precisely because he had begun to envy the wicked and their prosperity. This is in line with Proverbs 23. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. In other words, he wants the shalom that they experience, or at least he thinks they experience. He wants it as his very own. And so we see that verses 13 through 17, that it's shifted from they, they, they to I, I, I. Now it's all about Asaph. And he's struggling, and he's saying that basically that the pursuit of God seemed to be in vain. It seemed to be worthless. It seemed like there was no point because there was no payoff. They're not pursuing God. They've got shalom. I'm pursuing God. I've got no shalom. In fact, he says that he is stricken. And he is rebuked, seemingly, for the smallest of sins while they they go through violence and oppression unchecked. Can't help but think of the old film, It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey thinks that his life has been in vain. He sees wicked Mr. Potter prospering. He sees his own bank because of a mistake that someone made on the brink of ruin and disaster. He thinks everything has been in vain. Not all that the Heavenly Father does or deems for us as good seems good to us. Okay, There are things He deems as good for us, but they don't seem good to us. It's partially because we have what Martin Luther called a theology of glory, which is expressed in that quote by Tim Keller that if we do good, life will be good. And it's not that way. Instead, Luther talked about the theology of the cross. Meaning that in this life, we often suffer. And we are to expect suffering. We are not to expect ease in this life, this side of heaven. 
And so it's consistent with what we see in Philippians 1 where Paul says, it has not only been granted to you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for Him. We like the fact that it's been granted to us to believe. We love the doctrine of election for Presbyterians. And not, maybe not all of you are yet. Okay? But it's also been given to us, it's also been appointed for us that we also suffer for him, and that's the part we don't like. But it reminds us that the things we encounter are still under the providence of God, the appointment of God, and that he has a purpose in these things. We see Luther's theology of the cross borne out in places like Romans 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now here's the key. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We don't go directly to the crown. Jesus is the pattern. We go through the cross, then the crown. Now our cross does not save us. It's the cross of Christ that saves us. But He he is an example for us, and this is the pattern that God uses for His people. We will experience glory, but just not yet. We only experience it if we also suffer with Christ and wait. And so Asaph is sort of in that period where he's suffering with God, so to speak. He's tempted to give up. He's tempted to just give in with the flow of society around him. And I wonder sometimes, are we? Just want to give up. Enough's enough. Can't I just relax and not worry about anything and just do what I want to do? What's going on here? What's going on within Asaph's heart? What I think is going on is that he is allowing the horizontal or the earthly to interpret the vertical or the heavenly and eternal. He is interpreting who God is on the basis of what He sees instead of interpreting what He sees on the basis of who God is. He's got it upside down. And we can easily get it upside down. We all struggle with this all the time. We tend to live by sight and not by faith. We live on the basis of the horizontal, not the vertical, and we begin to believe that God is not really good. We believe the lie of the evil one in the garden. Now, Asaph admits that he couldn't reason his way out of this mess. And your mental powers are insufficient for this task as well. 
Let's jump to verses 22, 21 and 22 for a moment because he gets back to himself. When I was embittered, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast. His sin had made him like an animal. And that's what sin does. It makes us like animals. We don't think. We only desire and seek the fulfillment of our desires. But now, that's where he was, but that's not where he is when he writes this song. Right? Isn't there good news there? I love what the Westminster Confession of Faith does. I was studying this this past week in preparation for the, the, class, the Sunday school class on the standards, which will begin, I don't know when. But um, chapter 17 on the uh, perseverance of the saints, particularly paragraph 3, Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of the corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein. Does that frighten you? It ought to make us pause. Just because we're a Christian doesn't mean, one, we can't sin grievously, and two, we can't continue in that that sin for a time. Don't you just love how vague that phrase is, for a time? Not three days or three months. All we know is that eventually God's children are brought back. This should humble us. And it should fill us with joy at such a faithful Savior as we saw in the Heidelberg Catechism question one who continues to bring us back. That's how Asaph got back was the good shepherd came and got him. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In other words, this can be us. Sometimes it is us. This is why in Hebrews 12 we are warned against bitterness. They say, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and then clarifies this, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And then he goes a little farther to say, what does this look like? So that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Talk about being an animal. There's Esau. And so bitterness, because Esau was bitter about Jacob, the bitterness can lead us to very great sins. And we have to be careful. But the funny thing about bitterness is that it's like bad breath. You're the last person to know that you're bitter. Don't tell my wife this. When her boyfriend broke up with her years ago, she had a hard time. And she was bitter. 
And her boss, because she worked at the Bible Institute, one day talked to her about her bitterness. And she said, me? I'm not bitter. We're always the last to know when we're bitter. So, I need to move on here. Spurgeon noted that if we cannot believe God when circumstances seem to be against us, we do not believe Him at all. That's where faith is really seen, when life is hard, is what he's getting at. So envy keeps our focus on all we think we lack instead of on Christ who is sufficient. Let's go to our last part of this, is that Jesus brings the blessing that really matters. Or, as I should say, Jesus brings us the blessings that really matter. How is it that he found clarity? How is it that he came back from the brink? How is it that Asaph did not completely fall? He says, I went into the sanctuary of God. He got reoriented such that the vertical began to interpret the horizontal. He, in a sense, is like Job. Job, who was complaining for chapter after chapter, and you would complain too if you had those lousy counselors, okay? But finally he sees God and he goes, I have nothing more to say. And so Asaph essentially comes into the presence of God and goes, whoops. Now, as a religious professional, he was there often. It was his job to be in the temple. Okay, so it's not merely that he went and he showed up for work that I think is what's going on here, but really what's going on is that one day God broke through the bitterness of his heart, the blindness of his eyes, and showed him reality. We come to the Father through Jesus, who is Himself the final and living temple of God. And since He is the one who brings us to Himself through the power of the Spirit. But let's think for a moment just about who this Jesus is. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the righteous one who was slain by wicked men, as it says in Acts chapter 2. Okay? In other words, Jesus was the wrong rat. He was the one who only did good and yet died young, put to death by wicked men. Don't let your prejudice against rats blind you to the fact that Jesus was the wrong one. Okay? But not only that, we see that Jesus is the one who died to take away our sins and to give us a pure heart. And that's what's fascinating about how Jesus, in a sense, appropriates, I think, or, or was thinking of this passage here, uh, 73.1, when he said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God is going to be good to them. And he's going to show them himself. 
And so Asaph, I believe, experienced gospel blessings. And one of the gospel blessings he experienced that he lays out here is, you hold my right hand. In other words, he's preserved. He's kept safe, not by his own strength, but by the hand of God, just as no one could snatch us out of the hand of Jesus. Asaph was preserved by the powerful hand of God. And sometimes we don't recognize the need for this. Uh, you know, I, my kids are, you know, a little older now, and I, you think they've learned the lesson of looking both ways across the street. But just before we went on vacation, I think it was, I can't remember exactly when it was, it was recently, but I had to like grab one of them and pull them back and say, you didn't look. I love you, and I like you where you are. He does that. He knows we're in danger, and that hand pulls us back. Okay? That's one of the blessings of the gospel. He also says that it is good to be near God, and the wicked thinks it, think it is good to be far from God, but he realized it's good to be near to God. It was not in vain, but it actually was good. And we have been brought near to God by the work of Jesus, the, sa- the faithful Savior. One way in which it is good to be near God, I think, is Steve Brown tells the story. While, while I was in seminary, a hurricane ripped through Miami called Andrew. And um, Steve Brown was one of our professors, and at the time, he would commute up to teach classes. He lived down in Miami, and he tells the story of when Andrew came through and his house was being torn to pieces. And he is scared out of his mind in the bathtub, hoping that it doesn't fall apart. And with him is Quincy the Wonder Dog. Quincy has his chew toy, and Quincy is as calm as it can be. Steve is freaked out, and the dog is relaxed because he's in the presence of his master. To his dog mind, everything was going to be okay because my master is here. And that's the mindset we need to develop. It can be bad, (laughs) but everything will be okay because the master is here. We are near God. We have been brought near because of Jesus, through Jesus. Not only that, but we see that the Father meets us in prayer. That's part of how we've been brought near. We now have access to the fathers, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, because of the work of Jesus and we're brought near in the power of the Holy Spirit. But when we pray, what do we do? And tonight we're going to pray. But as I, as I thought about this, I, I was applying John Frame's triperspectivalism, you know, that whole triangle thing I talk about periodically. And, and so if we think about prayer in that way, there are three main aspects of prayer. There's God, there's us, and our circumstances. Those are the three. And we tend to get focused on our circumstances. We pray about our circumstances. Uh, and the Psalms keep telling us, reminding us that we're supposed to also pour out our heart to God. What that means is who we are, 
what needs to change in us, what we need to confess because we've done wrong, those sorts of things. But we also need to focus on the character of God and adore Him in prayer. And so if you think of our worship services, much of what we do in the invocation is the adoration of God and His character. We talk about our uh, our need for Him with the confession of sin, and then we often talk about our circumstances in the pastoral prayer. That should be a model for us, in a sense. When we lose sight of who God is, then those circumstances look bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we need to keep going back to who God is. Not only does he, does God meet him and meet us in prayer, but also in the Word. You guide me with your counsel. Jesus comes to us in the Word in order to give us wisdom. And so, how do we think of Scripture? Do we think of them, as Jonathan Edwards did, as a treasure to be explored? Or do we sort of resist coming to them, thinking it's just a bunch of rules? But it's been given to us to show us who He is, what He's done, that we might treasure Him, that we might have counsel and wisdom from Him. And one of the things He gives us is things like Psalm 73. So... He also learned, when Asaph got wisdom, he learned the future of the wicked. And he learned that God placed them on slippery places. They're on that waterfall, but instead of just slipping, they're going to fall to their destruction. And so while it might look good for them now, in the end, it's not going to be good for those who live without God. In due time, they will slip and fall. I'm reminded of this as I watched the <clears throat> the uh, documentary on ESPN uh, about O.J. Simpson. O.J. was quite the womanizer. And one of his friends says that he warned him. He says, God will not let you get away with that. Eventually, there's going to be a price to be paid. And even though O.J. was not found guilty of murdering his ex-wife, O.J. lost everything else. He essentially became a nobody. His acting career, gone. He was now a pariah by most people. I'm reminded as well of when Jonathan Edwards was being removed from his church. What's interesting about that is when I, if, if I was going through that, I imagine I probably might be a little stressed out if everyone basically was voting, if you guys were all voting to kick me to the curb. Edwards was serene. And it's partially, I think, because of this. He knew the eventual end, both of himself and of the wicked people who were trying to destroy him. And history reveals uh, that from Edwards and his family came many important, significant people. 
good politicians, I hope. <laughs> Some of them were politicians. Professors, presidents of universities, the people who led the uh, charge to get rid of Edwards, one of them ended up committing suicide. His children were almost all criminals and ended up in prison at some point. God will deal with it. And Edwards trusted God to deal with it. Just as we heard about from 1 Peter chapter 2, entrusting himself to God, and you are to entrust yourself to him. He learned that their prosperity is temporary and our eventual prosperity will be eternal. But we see that God will also strengthen his people because he is our portion, he's our inheritance, he is our very great reward. He gives us himself. And he sums it up with, and you will receive me to glory. In other words, our light and momentary afflictions will then shrink from view. Wow, I feel like I've been making up for lost time. I'm sorry. When the wrong rat dies, we're tempted to become envious. We're tempted to become bitter, to think that trusting in God is pointless. But God, in his great mercy, sets us right through his word so that we interpret our circumstances rightly. We discover that all blessing that lasts comes only through Christ and it is only received by faith in Him. That those who love Him and trust Him will suffer now but are sustained by the gospel until they are brought to share in His glory. So where are you as you listen to this? Are you someone who's currently living without God thinking you don't need Him? Or are you someone who struggles with the prosperity of others? Or are you one like Edwards who rests content in Christ, though your circumstances might be difficult? Let's pray. Father, forgive me for probably taking too long to say these things. But I do ask that you would be at work to help us understand your goodness and to help us to understand our circumstances in light of your goodness instead of questioning your goodness because of our circumstances. Father, I ask that you would give us a desire to meet with you in worship, in your word, and in prayer. That we would really believe it is good to be with you in all those places, in all those ways, because we realize what a great heart you have for your children. Because you gave your only son for us. Help us to understand that more fully so that we run into your presence instead of coming reluctantly. Help us to know more fully your grace and your mercy and your wisdom and your power. So that when the hard times come, we are not undone, but resting secure in your love. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.